Welcome, all you weirdos, Krakoan refugees, and everyone who loves back-to-school sales. As the X-Line expands beyond all reason, we remain the mutant member of your Weird Science Podcast family. I am your host, Jason, broadcasting from my undisclosed location deep in the Morlock Tunnels. And here with me once again is my man, Ruben. Ruben, how the heck are you today? Uh, good. I hate Canadians. You hate can- Wow. There we go. Once again, send that to Ruben at Weird Science. We don't actually have that email address, but you know what to do. Yeah, I, I'll make two comments about that to, to clarify. Uh, I'm sure there are some perfectly nice Canadians. and (laughs) Some of your best friends are Canadians. Yes, my wife's best friend is actually Canadian, which is, (laughs) that's actually true. Like a friend of Um, mine. But yeah, so we we in Seattle are getting uh, horrible air quality from the BC wildfires. Ah. Um, And I know they can't control that, right? Like, Hmm. um, it's a forest, right? But I'm going to blame the Canadians anyways. Yeah, here in the Northeast, we had that problem from uh, Nova Scotia fires earlier in the summer. It's rough. I feel a little bad, so I've got a my daughter's got a friend who uh, has like a late summer birthday, and uh, Seattle's been getting like wrecked by wildfires like the last four years. So the last two of this girl's birthday were outside, and the wildfires came. So oh, the no. parents moved the birthday up like a month to try to dodge it, and we still got hit with wildfire. So maybe it's them. <laughs> maybe that's their mutant power. Causing well, wildfires in Canada. <laughs> we're going to be taking my elder daughter to college for the first time in a couple of days, and, and her college is practically in Canada. So maybe yeah. maybe I'll stop by and, and tell them all what, what Ruben thinks of them. While and the alpha flight issue, not not too great. So was, that's wasn't my other... the worst issue this week, but also wasn't the best. Yeah. Okay, so we do have four books to talk about today, including three whole number ones. Those are Uncanny Avengers number one, Alpha Flight number one, and Dark X-Men number one. And then we're going to finish up with more of an old favorite, X-Men Red number 14. Now, for you completists out there, I do want to mention that Storm does appear in a very prominent role in this week's Invincible Iron Man annual. But that's some contest of chaos nonsense outside the scope of this podcast. Thank goodness, because we already have more than enough to talk about today. Now, I do have a little bit of a bad attitude this week, so I'm going to lay that out out front and maybe maybe purge myself of the bad energy, you know, burn some some time or something or whatever whatever it is you do. With all these new number ones, all these characters being dragged in, I spent way too much time Googling up obscure characters and continuity wrinkles and deciding which of these are worth even talking about and which I'm just going to, you know, leave to the side. Also, these books are starting to feel a little bit samey to me. Oh, we get an oddball team helping to rescue individual oppressed mutants from Orcus or Orcus equivalent. It happens too much. I mean, that's a classic kind of an X-Men story, but we've read that story a thousand times and we're getting several at once, so they've got to be really darn good to get my attention here. And finally, there seems to be way too many mutants still running around on planet Earth. I mean, didn't Professor X send them all away to to deserts and weird dimensions? I I just want to see this cleared up officially once and for all. How many mutants are still around and how do they manage to stay around? Now, are are those fair complaints, or am I just being a little Miss Cranky Pants here? I, I will say we don't need a lot of books doing the exact same thing, so that is a fair criticism. I think we could probably cut one or two of these books. Um, the number of people who are still running around doesn't bother me, and the reason for that is there have been a freak ton of X-Men over the years, and I would assume that each of them has learned the Red Triangle Protocol. So it doesn't shock but, me there's a ton of mutants around. But and Bob? 
blob? Can you, can <laughs> yeah, you really so, with a straight face with that blob yeah, so has there, the mental fortitude and discipline? Some, there are some who don't make sense. That's okay. a good call out. I don't know when he would have learned this technique. <laughs> Maybe he was too big to fit through a Krakoan gate. <laughs> I would I would read that miniseries. Okay, I'd, I'd read yeah. that one shot. Okay, I'd read that four page backup in an anthology series yeah. about Blob not That'd getting be pretty games. damn good, right? Like that would explain why there's a ton. Like maybe there was a whole bunch of mutants that were supposed were to go through, him. and yeah, yeah, he just kind of <laughs> plugged the hole. I mean, if Jeff the Land Shark can get his own uh, Infinity comic, how about yeah. Blob the the guy too fat to get through the door? Yeah. Okay, but anyways, I'm in a better mood already. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. Really. Yeah, no problem. There, there are okay. And I'm gonna say I really did like Uncanny Avengers. I feel like that could be doing something different. And I know you didn't think much of Dark X Men, mostly probably because you were like, "Who the hell are all these characters?" Um, mm-hmm. But I think it might be doing something a little bit different. And what I'll say, my strategy when reading these books, and you'll probably realize this, as I don't know anything about a lot of these characters, is I take them as a first impression and. If they don't interest me in the actual story, I don't bother with their backstory. Mm. I guess I see my job here as doing all this grunt work and, and letting those those good folks at home know all the backstories so they don't have to, you know, go to all these wiki websites and try to figure out what's real or not. So yeah. I'll try to give you the important points and I'll I'll try to do it with with a better attitude going forward. And those wiki pages are dense though. If you want to spend like ten minutes on each character, certainly Oh it's my gonna, gosh. It's I mean, be these rough. characters, I mean, look up Magneto <laughs> or look up anything in the Summers family and forget about it. Your day is gone. But to keep myself in a, in a good mood, we're going to start in on Uncanny Avengers number one of five, Justice and Truth. And, and I guess these are all basically five issue miniseries. And yeah. They're all starting at kind of the same time. So maybe it's going to feel crowded for a little over a month, or, you know, a little over five months, you know, a little bit longer than uh, the spooky season over there in DC World. But they're all going to kind of wrap up at the same time, too. So that's it's weird. It's weird because wasn't the five issue miniseries thing Jonathan Hickman's idea? That was like the original plan for the X line. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird that they're doing it now. That's an interesting point. And and I'm curious where where they go with it, because in a way, this is falling back to like old X-Men habits, pre-Hickman kind of X-Men writing. Yeah. So Let's let's see what happens. So this is Uncanny Avengers number one of five, written by Jerry Duggan, plus one page by Jonathan Hickman, uh, art by Javier Garam, colors by Maury Hollowell, letters by Travis Lanham, and designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So first off, I did do a short video about this issue on the Weird Science YouTube channel. So if uh, you happen to be dropping by for the first time after watching that on YouTube, hey, welcome. Thanks for coming by. I uh, hope you like wild theories and unnecessary pedantry, because that's what we do here. My thesis in that video was that this felt a bit like a return to the old school, pre hoxpox style of X-Men writing, like I was just saying, and uh, fans of that old style who you hear on the internets aren't always so crazy about this new Hickman direction. Well, folks, if you fell away because of that, maybe this is the book to come back to. It, it feels kind of classic in both good ways and maybe, at least for my taste, not so good ways. So let's let's go through this book in a little more detail and see if my thesis holds up or if I was just looking for a hot take to get all those sweet, sweet YouTube clicks. Okay, so in scene one here, uh, we open with a scene that is probably not going to appeal to you lapped readers, but really is, is more for folks like you and me, Ruben, folks who are really deeply stuck into this current X situation. Yep, yep. This flashback to not long ago, at least there's no accident. Uh, we see Modoc and Dr. Stasis descend into a dark, like abandoned mad scientist kind of lab. 
We have this glass and metal pod resting on the floor. This pod looks vaguely like an oversized human, almost like a like a thing or a Hulk. It's Betamax. Sure. It's, it's weird. What was that? <laughs> it's Betamax from Big Hero 6. It does look like Betamax. <laughs> That's an excellent call. Or possibly Rosie from the Jetsons. Yeah. So Dr. Stasis starts gently talking to someone inside the pod. And we get a very cool, creepy panel of that person's POV looking up through the window at his visitors. That, mm-hmm. that may be my favorite panel in this issue. Uh, what happens next? <clears throat> so the Orcus boys want to recruit this guy to their cause. And, and Stasis says to him, America has gone downhill. And that Orcus is filling the void in law and order since Shield's demise. All, all clues, I'm sure, to who this person is. Modoc wants the person to you know blink twice if you're willing to consider helping. And instead... That guy inside enthusiastically punches his way right the heck out of the pod. Modoc says, let's get this man a uniform. And Stasis says, I think I know just the one to use. Now, clearly this is the fake Captain Krakoa who we saw in Free Comic Book Day and some other stuff. And there are a few theories floating around about his true identity here, and it's not revealed in this book. I was expecting like a, a bookend scene at the end where we got more information, but this is it. So, so Ruben, who do you think this fellow might be? So I have no real basis for this other than mm-hmm. this is just what scratched in the back of my brain. Um, the uh, Hydra Captain America is who I think it is. That does seem to be the popular choice. Yeah, I don't know if he is it or not, but it, yeah. And I, I didn't even read any of that Captain America. And for some reason, that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. I think it was the fact that we get him really pandering to like the quality of America today. And for sure. Um, like order, who would care about that? Demise, which I think yep. was part of that situation. Yep. Uh, at the end of the issue, he kind of goes head to head with Captain America and, you know, more than holds his own. So he's got that kind of situation going on. Uh, that does seem to be the, the most likely one. Now, the argument against that is maybe going overboard to say nobody liked that story because some people yep. like that story, but a lot of people really didn't like that story. And I'd kind of be surprised to see Marvel bring it up again. I, I thought they were just going to sweep that whole era under the rug and just try to pretend it didn't happen. Other possibilities, sticking with the Captain America kind of aspect. I like the idea of it being Nuke, although he seems smarter than Nuke. Uh, <laughs> it could be John Walker, U.S. agent, but he's yeah, already ticketed for thought. another book coming up in a couple months, so he's probably too busy for that. Yeah. But I don't know why any of them would be in this pod. Now, Hydra Cap did die a little while ago. In fact, he died in the Ta-Nehisi Coates Captain America run. Do you know who killed Hydra Cap? No. Selene. Oh, interesting. Isn't that an odd coincidence? Selene, yeah. the, the newest member of the no longer existing Quiet Council of Krakoa? Yeah. Yeah, she melted him into goo, at least as far as we knew, in 2009's Captain America number nine. 2009? Probably, I think that's a typo. Probably 2019. I have 17 pages of notes here, folks. I'm not going to read all of you. It must have been 2019. Okay, so yeah. Uh, one more weird thing I noticed probably means nothing, but it poked out at me. Uh, Stasis says that Orcus's plan is to, quote, wipe the mutants off the face of the earth at their state function on the summer solstice. He very, very specifically says the summer solstice. Now, I don't get to use my astronomy degree all that often, so I got to whip it out now and, and tell you, folks. Uh, the summer stolsis did not happen on July 26, 2023, which we have been told very specifically from a Daily Bugle front page at X-Men 25, July 26, 2023 was when the gala happened and when that attack happened in an issue written by Jerry Duggan. So 
the way that he very specifically called out the summer solstice and then put it on a different date, not a huge deal, but it, it confused me. Do you have any wild... <laughs> No, you know, I'm going to no say not theories. a huge deal, except you've, you've now texted me about this, and <laughs> now we're talking about it on the podcast. These are important issues, Ruben. Yes, I have a feeling this is going to account for about a point of your score. <laughs> that your score would be a point higher if you didn't say the summer solstice. Which, Zero uh, <laughs> point. Zero. I'm learning to use the sound effect. Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so. I didn't, uh, it didn't bother me that much. I think you, you're totally right. It's so guessing, specific, right? Why say yeah. summer solstice if you're anyway? Yeah, moving. This forward. is like Comic Writer One Hundred and One. You guys need to stop putting in dates if you're not going to actually spend the time <laughs> maybe, to make sure they're the right dates. The date on the the bugle wasn't put there by Jerry Duggan. Maybe the the letterer or the designer, yeah. whomever, just just grabbed the date that the issue was coming out and slapped it on there. Yeah, and, and nobody noticed. Yeah. Oh well. There's a couple editorial issues in uh, this week coming up, especially in X Men Red. I'm going to probably you know complain about again later too because that's what i do but moving <laughs> forward to the next scene uh, like in a lot of these books we get a recap to catch us up on the events up through the gala which again makes sense if we're trying to get some new readers to come on back tell them what's up and this one is done pretty well it's it's told via ben yurik who i guess now owns the daily Bugle. yeah i was gonna ask you about that when did that happen is that something in a spider-man story or what? i don't know i we know that jay jonah is off doing his podcast stuff like a loser, who the hell is the podcast, <laughs> right? Uh, but so he's not part of it. I, I don't know how Ben Urich got control. In the YouTube video, I, I compared Ben Urich to the Marvel version of Lois Lane. Yeah. Which uh, I guess if you kind of squint hard. But anyway, anyway, the art here looks really cool. I think this is kind of the best stretch of art in the book here in the recap. Although the shadows across Urich's face and body on page nine kind of confuse me. I think the geometry is off. I, I stared at that yeah. for way too long. Yeah, I wonder if the artist used photo reference or just put on some stripes. But again, not a big deal. Just made me go, huh? No, it is annoying because there's one panel per office building, right? Like there's one pylon that cuts through the window and you see the shadow on him. It's like prison bars. Like there's Venetian blinds, maybe? Yeah, I don't don't know. And they're all kind of, some go this angle, some go that angle. I, I just don't know what's up. Yeah. Uh, so the Ben Urich narration con- continues for the rest of the book, which made me think, hey, is it possible that all of the Jerry Duggan narration boxes I've been complaining about for months and months now, will they all turn out to have been Ben Urich looking backward from sometime after Fall of X? Mm-hmm. That would actually be kind of cool. And if so, I'm going to have to retroactively give uh, give Jerry Duggan some credit for that. I want to say, too, the reflections on Captain Krokoa's attack on the UN seem to be very prominently featured in this. And it still really weirds me out that such a pivotal moment that they're going to keep calling back to took place in a free comic book day issue. It is. And it, it wasn't the UN. It was some uh, Washington, D.C. U.S. Congressional thing. Here we yeah. see him throwing okay. a grenade. Yeah. Back in the free comic book, we at least we had the idea that maybe he just kind of blew himself and everybody else up too, which, which yeah, clearly, clearly didn't. Here yeah. we see he threw the grenade at the, I don't know if they're senators or representatives or what, but he, he killed a bunch of uh, U.S. government dudes and blamed it on the mutants. I don't remember how I read the issue, but I don't even think you can get it if you're like digitally subscribed. It doesn't get delivered to you. There so it really is, would have pissed me off if like I... There is a digital collection out there. I'm, I'm sure it must be on the uh, Unlimited app, probably even if you're not subscribed. I think they have it yeah. out there. Yeah. But they give it to you in these recaps, so that's all right. 
Moving on, we get uh, on page 12, our first like current day scene in the book. So we've got some Orcus dudes herding dozens, hundreds of mutants into a ship bound for Mars. Lots of mutants, Ruben. Whole lot of mutants. Now, according to one of the dudes, these are all mutants who are, quote, not willing to take Orcus's mutant inhibitor injection. So do you think they have a choice, you know, column A or column B? You, you know, you get the injection, you get gets what behind the curtain on Mars? I'd like a little more, little more clarity on that, because sometimes it seems you see people being dragged off to get the injection. I don't know if they had, had a choice. Again, just, I'd like, I just like it to be a little more settled. Yeah, I'm kind of curious what the pressure is on Orcas to actually give people a choice. Is it because they're partnering with governments and they have to appear to be less than just fascists willing to? Yeah, the relationship between Orcus and all the government stuff is is hazy. So at this point, we don't get any answers to what I want to know, but we do see, see two angry mutants start just killing all the Orcus dudes. These mutants are Psylocke, the Quanon, Quanon, Canon. I have no idea how to say this lady's I name. I'm sorry. Quanon. I'm just going with Psylocke, yeah. not Betsy Britton. She's off doing Betsy Britton things. Uh, and Penance. Now, this murderous rampage is only stopped by the arrival of a few good Avengers. Those would be Cap, Deadpool, and Quicksilver. Now, they recruit Psylocke and Penance to uh, Cap's new Unity team, which is the whole point of this book. And uh, Psylocke and Penance go along with the idea pretty quickly, you know, because it's Captain America. And who's going to say no to Captain America? No one's going to say no to Captain America. I love that angle, though. Everyone respects him. Mm -hmm. Even the And he doesn't give them a hard time for all their, you know murders either which is an interesting that choice. was yeah that was really really surprising he almost seems to encourage it right because they're like hey we're not gonna you know avoid killing these people and then he what does he say specifically plays up really the revenge angle hey you want revenge come with me and we'll get revenge yeah i mean they are the avengers which is almost like revenge i do wonder what cap's been saying publicly right if all this he, he recognizes that the mutants are getting the short end of the stick here that Orcus or, you know, a bad bunch of baddies. So is he going forward in public and saying anything about this, or is he only acting behind the scenes? We'll probably find out more about that going forward, but I'm very curious. TBD. I, this part really is what upped my score, because in the last, I don't even remember who, I, I think it was Kieran Gillen, but, and I think it was in Judgment Day, you know, Scott Summers was really giving Captain America, you know, grief about how in the past there's been, you know, atrocities against the mutant community and he kind of either sided with the oppressors or at least looked the other way and did nothing right when he could have and that seemed to have like at the time it was like yeah that sucks and it was kind of like good point right and this time he's sort of leading the charge you know he's not sitting on the sidelines and he's like you know we need to fix this this is not right and so i i actually kind of thought like it was a cool element of character growth for both of them like not necessarily that i would expect Steve Rogers to admit that he was wrong, but he's trying to do the right thing here, right? Maybe that yeah, in, in a scolding different way was on his mind. Done before, I like it. Yeah, so we it works for me. Cool. We also learned that Rogue is already on the team, which makes sense. She's already a combination Avenger slash X Men, uh, <laughs> and I like to see Deadpool here because he has an interesting history with Captain America as well. He was, you know, really closely tied to Hydra Cap and was all in believing this is Steve Rogers as Captain America. Whatever he says must be good because he's Steve Rogers and yeah. Deadpool. Deadpool's always gets gets screwed in his books. He's just that character, but he got screwed big time for following Hydra Cap. So seeing him once again following this Captain America, I think yeah. we're going to see another angle that really also makes me think that the Hydra Cap, uh, Cap and Krakoa is in play because that could give a real 
a real nice uh, moment later on. And I I normally don't think that Deadpool's that good of a character or even a enjoyable character to read. Um, mm-hmm. But I really liked this dynamic, right, of Steve Rogers being like, yeah, he's an annoying jerk, but he deserves better than what he got, right? And yeah, he and, could and be a very valuable asset. The best in people. Yeah, and so and even just the idea of like he would have, you know, he could have been a Howling Commando and he would have driven everybody insane, but he would have been, you know, one of the most valuable people on the team. I love that, right? It's like a great way to describe Deadpool. Is like, yeah, can you imagine like a time travel book where Deadpool ends up on like the uh, the Invaders you know, back in World <laughs> War Two with uh, Namor? Namor yeah. and Deadpool oh, would be a, a fun dynamic, I think. I think Namor would kill him many times. Yeah, yeah constantly, <laughs> repeatedly. Uh, okay. Uh, moving back to the actual book, uh, uh, I'm going to point out that Quicksilver says, I ran as many of the mutants as I could to the Canadian border, Yeah, which is an interesting choice. Now, for one thing, he's Quicksilver, so I don't know why he would just leave them at the border. And also, we're going to find right? Quicksilver. He's <laughs> like the Flash. Point. Yeah, maybe. Why do they have to go through customs? <laughs> is this an emergency or not? And also, we're, when we get to Alpha Flight, we're going to talk about how the Canadian government is not exactly seeming all that welcoming to mutants. So, hmm, interesting but maybe, maybe I actually felt like it was a cool synergy, right? We'll, we'll get there, but it seems like there's some sort of camp where they're trying to like get everybody together that is not a combatant and then take them away. Yeah, so why not bring them all the way To the there? base. Yes, yeah, right. that's probably what he should have done. But in my head, Cannon, that's what he did. It's complicated writing all these books and keeping them all together. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, one other thing. I, I Googled this, so now you have to know about it. Deadpool uses the phrase Oscar Mike, as in we're Oscar Mike to our secret home base. Uh, do you know what that phrase means? No, I just assumed it's some kind of military It's a military jargon. thing. It's military lingo for on the move, at least according to Urban Dictionary and Reddit, and when have they ever lied to me? Uh, also, the secret base seems to be the old Xavier Mansion. Yeah. Are, are we going back to the mansion again? No, I thought that was a sort of misdirect in case people were listening. Yeah, we're he not was going to our doing actual the double base. reverse misdirect. So let's let's find out. But I, I'm on the record of saying let's let's not go back to the mansion quite yet. It was fine seeing uh, Shadow Cat, Kitty, Kate, whatever we're calling her, go back to the mansion just to get some swords. But I don't think we need anyone to have a headquarters there. Wasn't there like some alien race that had also sort of taken up refuge there? Oh, it was uh, was the aliens, or was it the danger room personification? Uh, maybe that's it. Yeah, yeah there's something there, right? Room. I think it's yeah. I think it's inhabited by something dangerous. I don't think you want to spend a ton of time there <laughs> right now. It always is. It always yeah. is. Okay, so uh, in the next scene, we meet our villains. It's a trio of Blob, Wildside, and Captain Krakoa. Now. Captain's definitely alive. Uh, he's got Blob and Wildside convinced that he's just Scott Summers, Cyclops in the suit. I guess they never asked him to take off the helmet. Uh, well, Blob it's a little is convinced. Weird too because Wildside says he doesn't care. He just wants to. He wants to kill some dudes. Yeah, Go ahead. these aren't the smartest characters. So I'm just gonna say, okay, fine, they're they're idiots. But um, I never thought Steve Rogers, like from the nose down, looks like Scott Summers from the nose down. <laughs> like it I. Is- well, I mean, he's got a mask over his eyes, and in comic yeah. books, that's all you need, right? I, I buy Grayson, that, like, Robin, you don't no know one, who no he is. Yeah, I totally buy you don't know who he is, but, like, I I would like to think you would be like, yeah, you're not Scott. And the voice, too, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's got to be enough here that, that tells you this guy is not Scott Summers. So, I, they kind of annoyed me. 
But I One did like the idea maybe, that they had joined up with tech, him. We, we, let's, let's say there's some tech in the Captain Krakoa suit that changes the voice, changes the whatever. I mean, it's a comic book. We can make that work. I'm okay with them joining up with him because, you know, I would say, okay, they know Orcus attacked and they know this guy, you know, was like a suicide bomber, or like, you know, attacked the government. So it makes sense. Like, he could spin the story of like, oh, we got attacked. We got to fight everybody. And then they're like, yeah, let's get on board with that. Yeah, and they would be like be falling back into old habits, right? Yep. So uh, this team is calling themselves the New Mutant Liberation Front, calling back to the group formed by Strife in New Mutants, number 86, back in 1989. Now, I'm just going to call them the New MILFs, just for, for shorthand. Now, so the New MILFs are flying over Krakoa. Oh, a little turn, turned off that sound effect. The New MILFs are flying over Krakoa, looking for some new recruits of their own. And Captain Krakoa jumps down to the surface landing smack in the middle of the Quiet Council's headquarters at the Grove. Now, along the way, he drops past at least half a dozen very cool-looking Stark Sentinels. Isn't that something? Yeah, I get the idea that um, you want to show that it's like a defended island, but I was like, this is like half the Stark Sentinel army just flying above Krakoa in this one spot. Also, I think it's cool because last time we knew, Shaw, who technically owns the island, he wanted Stark Sentinels to patrol it, but he hadn't gotten them yet. So this is some evidence, if we're going to take it seriously, that Orcus is going along with Shaw's plan, maybe. So when Captain lands, we see the face of Krakoa there crying, looking very creepy. Uh, Captain Krakoa then descends into the pit and very, very quickly recruits the Fenris twins. Recruits the Fenris twins. Say that five times fast. Now, the sister seems rather more enthusiastic and maybe overly friendly with the man yeah. she also thinks is Cyclops. Now, yeah. shouldn't somebody else be down there with the Fenrises? <laughs> somebody with a red diamond on his forehead? Yeah. Different, different spots, I'm guessing. <laughs> but when we saw, didn't we, when we saw the Fenrises dragged down, I think we saw them right next to Sinister. Yes. It's the only time yes. we've seen Sinister since he got sent down there. Yeah. So again, if we're taking this seriously, we're being shown that Sinister has gotten out. Yeah, that's interesting. I'll, I'll buy that Doug Ramsey is somewhere completely different because he was, you know, brought in not as a punishment, but to protect him. Yeah. But, uh, hmm, Sinister should be there. Okay, back to our heroes. The Unity Squad makes a quick visit to the Morlock Tunnels, right next to where I'm broadcasting, uh, mostly just to show readers of the book that that team exists, I think, just to show some con connective tissue, which is nice. Uh, Quicksilver, who's not much more than a transportation system in this issue, he kind of zips in, grabs the team, and zaps everybody over to a fight with these new MILFs, now with extra Fenris. It's a pretty decent fight, and mostly what's noticeable is that, again, Captain Krakoa really holds his own against Captain America, and in that final panel, twists Cap's shield, and it looks like he breaks his arm, which you, sh you shouldn't be able to do that to Captain America unless you're, you know, Thanos or somebody. Well, let's say they're they're equivalently strained, you know, without the suits, and then he says the suit enhances the user's strength, right? So then he I would mean, have the slightly more out, power. Yeah. So again, this is, to me says this is the Hydra Cap, but mm -hmm. we'll see. And Captain Krakoa also says to, to Steve Rogers, your attacks are so obvious and predictable, which if you're also a version of, of Steve Rogers, that's a thing you might notice and might say. So I think all signs are pointing to this being Hydrocap. So to wrap up, this is my favorite of the week's number ones, uh, partially because I, I recognize most of the characters, but even more because it, it more directly addresses things I'm invested in, like Fenris in the pit, Captain Krakoa, uh, 
Deadpool and his history with Captain America, all that good stuff. Uh, the art, I'm, I'm mixed on some scenes I love and others that look to my very, very untrained eye. They look kind of dated. They look like early 2000s. We've just figured out we can do digital coloring, airbrushing kind of look to it, which is not my favorite thing. But again, some folks are really into that look. Yeah. I didn't like the art so much, but I, I was, it didn't annoy me or distract me. And I did really like the story. And like you said, this seems to be the central key plot kind of being yeah, developed. This is a book that it has a clear purpose. And like, if you asked me, why does this book exist? I could give you a couple quick answers and say, okay, that's, that's why this book exists, which I don't know that I could say for everything else going forward. But for this book, oh, I'm, I'm going to be slightly more positive than I have in my notes and call this an eight out of 10 out of, out of optimism. Good. That's where I'm at. I, I was okay. really happy reading this one and I'm, I wanted to read the next issue like now. So. I thought it was good. always a good sign. Yep. Uh, moving into our next book, it's going to be Alpha Flight number one of five, Divided We Stand, part one. It's written by Ed Brisson, who last we saw him in the X World, he was kind of alternating issues with Hickman on the Dawn of X New Mutants book. That was a long time ago. Also, he's Canadian, and Marvel likes to match writers with their topics this way, other than the next writer on. Uh, uh, Daredevil, but that's a whole different podcast. Uh, art by Scott Scott Godleski, colors by Matt Miller, letters by Travis Lanham, designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. Now, Alpha Flight, are you a, a longtime Alpha Flight guy, Ruben? No, I've always known about them, but I think this might even be the first Alpha Flight issue I've ever read. So, wow, I'm not the authority on Alpha Flight. Well, I'm not Canadian either, as we've established. Uh, this is a team created by Claremont and Byrne. Originally, just a bit of like backstory for Wolverine. It was like a place for him to have come from. Wolverine was like on Alpha Flight for a hot minute. Uh, boy, I really sounded like Jim there for a second. Uh, so I've read a, a bit of that first volume of Alpha Flight, uh, probably all of the John Byrne run, which goes up to like issue number 29 before another writer comes in. And the first like dozen issues or so are, are really good classic Bronze Age Marvel storytelling and Usually going forward, when they bring back Alpha Flight characters, they bring back the ones from that run. So almost all the characters here, with a couple exceptions, are from that that John Byrne run. Now, when I heard that Alpha Flight was coming back, I wondered, you know, why? Why why do we need to have this team in this story right now? And now that I've read it, I kind of still have that question. It's not a bad book, but unlike Uncanny, I, I don't really know yet why it exists. Now, we do get to see the Canadian government's reaction to what happened at the gala and all that orca stuff. And it seems to be identical to the American government reaction, right? Yes. They, they buy the whole orca line. Mutants are bad and dangerous. Time to go all hate and fear on them again. Uh, they, they spin up Department H to be an anti-mutant team. They bring out Alpha Flight team made up of some of the members of that original team. Uh, specifically, we got Guardian, James McDonald Hudson, often called Mac. He's the guy in the Canadian flag suit. Originally, all the powers were just in the suit. I think currently he has a cyborg deal going on. I don't know. Uh, Shaman, he's Michael Two Young Men. That's his last name, Two Young Men. Uh, he's a <laughs> member of the Sarsi people. He left his traditional way of life, become a surgeon, but then was visited by his grandfather's spirit and learned traditional magic. He's kind of a, kind of a Doctor Strange native Canadian thing. In my memory, his magic usually involves a magical pouch that has ingredients in it. Uh, moving on to Snowbird, who is a demigoddess of nature, does a lot of shape-shifting into Canadian animals like 
polar bears and snowy owls. <laughs> Canadian animals. <laughs> Seriously, polar bears and snowy owls are like her, her two big things. Okay. Originally, she was mystically bound to the territory of Canada. And if she left the borders, she'd get sick and lose all her powers. I, oh, I think they moved beyond that, but that yeah. was her thing. She was like the spirit of Canada. She was like, That's uh, you know, in, in some uh, DC books, you get, uh, oh, uh, not Captain America, Uncle Sam, right? And he's like the personification of America. She's kind of like that. Yeah, I but get more that. of a nature thing than a patriotism thing. Okay, yeah. And finally, we've got Puck, everybody's favorite Alpha Flight character. Yeah. He's the, the short guy, an acrobatic fighter. Uh, do you, you want to guess where his name comes from? <laughs> hockey puck, of course. <laughs> it is. It's it's not Shakespeare. It is. He spins around like a hockey puck, uh, which is really funny. Uh, and originally, that's all he was—just a regular short dude, good at fighting. Yeah. I think Scott Lobdell retconned him to having some sort of demonic superpowers. Scott Lobdell was the '90s. Things happened, uh, but we seem to be kind of ignoring a lot of that complicated backstory, which I think is a good choice. And then we've got Alpha Flight supervisor, Erica Doiron, who's a brand new character as far as I can tell. So all we know is she seems to be very much a true believer in this Orcus-style anti-mutant team. Now, originally, Alpha Flight had some mutants on the team. Uh, the twin siblings, North Star and Aurora, who like, we saw them not so long ago, especially in like Trial of Magneto miniseries. Yeah. And of course, they're not going to be invited to be a part of this anti-mutant version of the team. <clears throat> Pause to have some tea. Done with tea. So, in fact, it seems surprising that these guys would go along with an anti-mutant idea for their team, given their history. And an angry Canadian guy with a man bun at their first public appearance thinks so, too, and throws a hot cup of Tim Horton's best right at Mac's head. Which Ooh, is... Cut. Good wow. job. <laughs> I don't know much about Canada. Tim Horton, curling, hockey, yes. politeness, that's all I got. Uh, so, yes. spoiler alert, to kind of give away the ending of the book, you're listening to the show, you're going to get spoilers. Uh, the team members have not turned anti-mutant. They're just pretending to go along, even staging fights with their old mutant teammates, teammates to sell the idea. They're really working together with North Star and Aurora and Dakin slash Dakin, now going by Fang for some unknown reason. Well, that way we can we can just say Fang instead of mispronouncing his name. Well, that that's an old uh, old Chris thing, Dak and Dakin, that I remember from his podcast. But uh, we'll, yes. we'll go with Fang. And yet they're all working together to smuggle mutants to an area of Manitoba they call Krakoa North, which is where Quicksilver should have just taken those Americans, not the border. <laughs> so the gates don't work anymore. So the plan is to gather a whole bunch of mutants at once, load them up into a spaceship wholesale, and send them off to Chandelar, the throne world of the Shi'ar Empire, for safety. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think of this plan? Um, I think it's good to get them somewhere other than Krakoa because of the Civil War. So that, that makes sense to me. Right, other and, than Morocco, Mars, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's good. Um, and I know, Quix you know we know Quicksilver's taking people somewhere, so that works. But I, I'm curious, like, is, has that been vetted <laughs> with the GR? Like, are they on board with this? It would be... I know, like, usually they do stuff that Charles asked them to do, but I'm not sure that this would yeah, be. Yeah, I, I like that signed off on. because it made me think, hey, what is going on in the whole empire of space, right? We, we've been told that all this Mysterium stuff is saving the galactic economy, and now that Krakoa is offline and the mutants aren't providing any Mysterium anymore, I gotta believe, 
how are all these different alien races reacting to these events on Earth? I think that could be very interesting. We do see some aliens on Mars a little bit later, but we're just kind of shown in the background. No real, no real information there. But it, it makes you think, hmm, what's up with that? So also working secretly with them and pretending to be their enemy is this woman who uses the name Nemesis. Now, there have been at least three different Alpha Flight characters who have used the name Nemesis, uh, cutting through all that nonsense. I'm pretty sure this is, I think she's the second one who goes by the name Jane Thorne, who was a member of Alpha Flight during the 1990s. And I think she's the only Nemesis who could teleport, which is a power we see Nemesis do in this story. So I'm going to go with this is Jane Thorne. Uh, other things going on in this issue. There's, there's another member of the current official Alpha Flight team who does go out on missions. This is Roger Box Jr., roboticist and the son of one of the original team members. I'm not sure. Do you think that he is in on the double-crossing mutant smuggling plan? What, do you yes. have any idea what his allegiance is? Yeah, I think he must be in, informed. Oh, you think maybe he's actually uninformed? That actually would be a more interesting dynamic, that there are people that are part of the team that don't That's what I'm going know. with now. He's, he's yeah. the son of an original team member. And he's, he's building these box sentinels, which are apparently a lot like Stark sentinels, but smaller, more polite, and all their nuts and bolts are in metrics, so you need a whole different set of socket wrenches. But other that's, than that, that's they're regular I, sentinels. That's one of the few things I grabbed onto and kind of thought was clever, where he basically is like, yeah, we don't need something that can't just walk through a door. Because <laughs> that is one of the things that's kind of ridiculous about sentinels, right? You're like protecting the peace, but... Usually that means like wrecking the entire city to get one single mutant. Not very Canadian. No, no. no. So I thought that that was pretty good. Um, and I actually, if that's, if this is a dynamic that they're going to play, which is like, they've got one person on the team that doesn't really know. And is maybe even against like the agenda of what's really going on. That's a, that's a little tension. That they could could be, and if he's, I mean, if he's programming these sentinels, either he's on board with the secret mission and he's, you know, put some, some Trojan horses back doors into these Sentinels, or he's a true believer, anti-mutant, and he's going to, you know, be on the other side. Could be, be fun either way. Yeah. And finally, we have two mutants on the run, ones who end the issue in, in different circumstances. First, we have Albert Lewis, or possibly Albert Louis. Uh, I don't know. He's an existing character, a mutant with bioelectrical powers who sometimes goes by the name Feedback. He was on Alpha Flight in the early 90s. And I guess he was supposed to have died or been revealed to have died in a very recent Steve Orlando Marauders issue, which we didn't read. Now, here it's revealed or retconned that uh, Al had merely faked his death, has been hiding for years under the name Lucas Peterson. And his part of the story takes place in California, not Canada. So I'm not sure how he's even going to connect with our Alpha Flighters. Any any guesses there? He seems kind of extraneous. <laughs> yeah, very extraneous. Um, no, I, I don't know who he is and I don't know why he is in Canada or, uh, California. And I don't know why I'm supposed to care that he's in California. Um, all of these are questions that lead to my ultimate score for this. It feels like this is definitely an issue that, um, it's not really a number one, right? Like I usually don't have this opinion that, that I know is very popular in this uh, podcasting community of like, Hey, your, your issue number one needs to actually let people know why they should care about this story. Mm -hmm. um but i felt it a lot in this one i read this these characters and i couldn't tell you like what their personality is like from these individual issues and i don't know why i'm supposed to care that there's somebody in canada that's being 
or yeah, California this, that's being this chased. This was an issue that really made me exhausted at the end, just because there were so many names, so many characters, so many convoluted backstories to look up. And again, if you're just reading through it for fun, you don't need to do all that, but it, you didn't really have a lot of time spent with anything in particular to to grab your attention, I think. Is that is that what you're yeah. getting at as well? That's basically it. Yeah, I don't know these characters. I don't know why I'm supposed to care. And I don't really know what the exciting plot point is for people that are just generic, like mm-hmm. era X-Men fans. Yeah, there's a, a whole other mutant on the run who gets rescued and taken up to Krakoa North. I don't know if he matters, if he was just a gimmick to show the fight and to have that fun reveal at the end that it was a fake fight. Yeah, uh, I, the art is good. I particularly like the way uh, those those mutants, Argent and Feedback, were drawn. I thought the nighttime staged battle in Saskatoon looked pretty cool. Uh, now, overall, a, a perfectly decent superhero team comic, a little overstuffed, a little too many things in it. This doesn't really have that spark that, like you said, the other way around and previously, I don't really feel like I need to read the next issue. I've, I, I, I'd be okay trade yeah. waiting on this if we weren't you know, doing this every week. Yeah, for sure. So for I, me, I think this I, spells out, I'm going to go with, oh, call it a 6.5 out of 10. Not horrible, yeah. but just kind of just kind of laying there. Yeah. I, I, it's, and you're an Alpha Flight pseudo fan, right? I'm more just at a 6 on this one. But I, I, it's not bad, and I will read the next issue. And I think the, you know, how much do all these characters know about this pro mutant agenda question is is a little interesting, right? If if I had like the, the the pitches for all these books on my desk, if you know, I hear they're changing X Men editors going forward. If I were X Men editor and had to pick through these, I think the Alpha Flight one would be. I'd, I'd say, well, maybe maybe we don't need to do this one quite yet maybe put this off to the side it's almost like you could have just shown this um as like a one panel thing right like oh up in alpha up in canada they're doing this this could be a a written shorter it could be like a cool backup in in x-men or in uncanny avengers you know something like that i don't think we need a whole series on it but a couple pages here and there could be intriguing all right let's uh, stop kicking the canadians and move on to dark x-men number one of five there is a kingdom written by Steve Fox, who has mostly done indie stuff, but he did write the recent-ish X-Men 92 House of XCII, which was like an out-of-continuity, semi-comedic miniseries retelling House of X. Uh, art by Jonas Scharf, colors by Frank Martin, and letters by Clayton Cowles, with a backup art done by Nelson Daniel. Now, this book spins out of the Dark Web crossover, which is already putting me in a bad mood. Because I thought that crossover was, let's just say nonsense. I was going to say horseshit, but this is a family (laughs) podcast, so I'm going to stick with nonsense. Yeah. Uh, And as you might remember, at the conclusion of that story, Maddie Pryor was still the ruler of Limbo. I don't know why Magic gave her control of Limbo other than, hey, it'd be cool for a comic book. She set up an embassy in New York City where she shacked up with a troubled Alex Summers who is, oh, I'm going to get his name right. He is Havoc, correct? Yes, correct. All right, yep. I've, been, I've been studying, working on my Summers Brothers. He's Havoc. Good job, yep. Uh, over the course of Dark Web, Maddie had been working with the troubled Ben Riley, now known as... Uh, oh, yes, you're giving me the opportunity to say it. Chasm. Chasm, or possibly Chasm, depending on what you feel <laughs> like, yeah. Who's, uh, he's a, a Peter Parker clone, missing a chunk of memories. Tons of backstory there I'm not going to get into, but he's currently imprisoned in limbo. I still don't know why these two, who are very much in cahoots, one of them gets imprisoned in limbo, the other is still queen of all limbo and gets to hang out in New York City. Doesn't seem fair. And she's like representative of a foreign nation, right? 
I guess that has its privileges. Uh, so, uh, Maddie has a demonic version of Cerebro and confirms for us one more time that all those mutants who are marked with the gates at the gala, not really dead. Okay, we've, it's, I guess not everybody's reading every book, so it's good to put this in multiple places. They really want us to know that they're just, they're just kind of missing somewhere. They're not dead. So I actually buy that a lot of these mutants we see here, if they're kind of in limbo, they're on embassy grounds, it's almost like diplomatic immunity, maybe Charles's psychic command just didn't work. So I, I'm going to buy that as a reason why they could, they could not have been forced with the gates. Sort of another dimension, right? And I don't think Charles has the ability to broadcast across different dimensions. So it's like the American embassy in Australia in that Simpsons episode where they force the toilet water to go around the other way. It's it's basically America, right? <laughs> so this is like basically another dimension. Yes. So there's a ton of characters here. I looked them all up. I'm not going to tell you about all of them. I'm going to list a few that seem to kind of matter. We've got Mplate, who is kind of a vampire-ish villain mutant from Scott Lobdell's Generation X. We have I'm going to go with Azazel, who is Nightcrawler's ne'er-do-well father, maybe. We know Nightcrawler's going to get his whole backstory revamped later this year, so stand by for changes. So, But Azazel, he does he does the bam thing thing, probably with some sort of a wrinkle differently than Nightcrawler, but basically he's like uh, like Quicksilver in the other issue. He just moves people around. Yeah, he's basically like a demon, demon mutant, and... He has the bamfing power, but also like a energy projection kind of weapon thing. And of course, he doesn't have morality because he's a demon. For sure. We've got Solar, who is a mutant villain from the 70s and 80s, died of the Bronze Age, brought back in Krakoa. We have Zero, who is Kenji Uedo. He's from Generation Hope. He's a mutant with gross, gross, gooey, fleshy powers. Now, I bring him up because do you remember in Sins of Sinister? We were told that the whole earth was covered by the fleshy clone of of somebody who had grown out of control. Remember yes. that little bit? Yep. That was this guy. Or oh, a clone okay. of this guy. So okay. he looks gross here. That magic that grossness covering the entire planet. Yeah. That's what happened in Sims of Sinister. Yep. So next we get a seed of a young mutant on the run, just like we had an Iceman and twice an Alpha Force and all over the place. This mutant, though, we've seen before. This is the teenager gimmick, Carmen Cruz. From Vita Ayala's Children of the Atom. Yes. The one child of the Atom who turned out to actually be a mutant. So, hey, she's back. Yeah, yeah. So, I want to jump in on this. I I hear what you're saying. This is the same kind of mutant on the run story. But this one I actually, at least in recent memory, knew of. And I thought the Children of the Atom miniseries was garbage. So, um, I didn't know the point for it. But... This kind of makes me at least a little bit more invested in this. I know who this character is, and I do recall that this group was a bunch of people that wanted to be mutants, and they were trying to get to Krakoa for the gala, and then it turned out that one of them was, and there was some kind of like dynamic of you know the wannabes. Some real jealousy going on, yeah. Yeah, and then the and the real one. And they're kids, right? They're like really young. I remember that bit. And so this all works a little better for me. Like you've got the the one who's a mutant who's being kind of hidden from you know all of the searches for mutants by her other friend and then the father of the one that's not a mutant kind of calls orcas yeah that was that was decently done that was you know characters we kind of know there's a dynamic going on of the, the father who wants to protect his his kid but also doesn't know to not trust orcas you know it was it had some some fun wrinkles to it but anyway poor carmen cruz she gets taken away in an orcas armored vehicle where she is rescued by 
three more characters. We have Gambit, Archangel, that's Warren Worthington, one of the original five. Remember when there was only five X-Men? Remember those good days? And also Maggot. Uh, you know who those characters are. So they do a pretty professional X-Men type job of rescuing Carmen, at least until one of the Orcus goons slaps a Wolverine-looking android into action. Now, this Logan bot has his own backstory. This, uh, his name is Albert. He dates back to the early 90s, most recently seen in the I, Wolverine miniseries. That's I, Wolverine, one word, like iPhone. Uh, he has a whole thing going on. It's like a tragic android. Am I real? Am I not real? You know the idea. You can look it up on your own. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of thought this was a little too much. And what I was hoping that this could have been was just the story we were told more recently with like X-Men, where Orcus would have a bunch of skeletons of Wolverine, like fueled with Sentinel powers, right? I, I didn't need this to be a character. This could have just been a MacGuffin, you it know, skeleton like of Logan one thing. Bit of old continuity, too many, or maybe maybe three to six bits of old continuity, too many. Again, I was just exhausted by all my googling at this point, so I could. If you're only reading this book, maybe it doesn't bother you as much. The role that it follows. That if it just being a very dangerous, unexpected Wolverine that's in this armored transport that then, you know, seriously injures Archangel. Right. 100% works for Snips me, right? Right through the chest. Yeah, that part's great. So I, I thought, like, again, I would have been much happier if this was just one of the skeletons. That yeah, I expect that he is going to attack. be a whole subplot going forward. Otherwise, yes. why make him this specific? No, 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 for sure. Yeah, there's going to be something where, like, they get him on the team and blah, blah, blah. But again too much <laughs> maybe, I was really invested maybe in, three issues from now we'll say oh yeah that was a good call but as for right now it just seems like too much icing on the cake yeah because uh, otherwise this was cool to me right like you've got the, the team that was all hanging out in the spooky mansion that madeline Pryor has set up right rescuing yeah the, th so this team is run. now rushing in to rescue the first team and very different feel to them, right? So this is Madeline Pry herself with Havoc and Zero and Emplate and Azazel. So they're they're just you know killing Orcus goons. And it's not really clear to me yet, I think on purpose, what the relationship is between the two teams. Right. So when Carmen asks Gambit, are they on our side? He just says, Yeah, that's complicated. Which, you know, for this book, saying it's complicated, that really means something. So, yeah, do you have a feeling for, were they working together, or are they at odds, or, or what is their relationship? No, I, I, my sense was that the little subgroup of mutants with, you know, Archangel and Gambit were maybe just out here doing what we've seen with Bishop and um, a few others, right? Just kind of like on the run, little sub Shadow Cat, right? Group. Just, just yeah. on their own, doing some little, little, little strikes, some rescuing when they can, beating up on Orcus when they can. But they do seem to know of each other, not surprised to see the other team. Yeah. Well, yeah, they know. I mean, Alex certainly knows most of these people. And I think the X-Men know of Madeline Pryor, at least. Sure. So long and sure of it is, the combined team does rescue Carmen, and they bring her back to the Limbo Embassy. But Havoc is pretty badly wounded. He gets back. Uh, poor Warren is left behind to the tent emerges of Orcus. That's a big deal. So in a final scene, we see Warren stuck inside some kind of a stasis capsule. With two Orcus higher-ups there, I don't recognize. One's a, a big dude in a suit with glory red eyes. The other lady, it's a, a blonde lady with kind of a frog face, although maybe that's just an art problem. Uh, in the very, very last page, 
is a splash that shows two more characters in Orca's custody. In front is a woman who looks a lot like Madeline Pryor, but even freakier and more animalistic. This seems to be a multiversal version of Madeline, who seems to spin out of Hickman's Secret Wars event. Oh boy. There's a, tons of kettles of fish that I don't know how far we're going to go into, but again, more backstory. And behind her is a creature with a face that resembles one of the xenomorphs from Aliens. This, uh, according to the House to Astonish blog, at least, this is the Banff Dragon, a demonically transformed nightcrawler from this same world as this Madeline. If I've been saying Madeline, Madeline, I mean the same lady, Goblin Queen. I'm not even sure. So, so I would say the one thing we forgot to talk about is the the Dark X Men show up to rescue the uh, Gambit and Archangel, and uh, and then Alex gets a Wolverine claw right through his throat because he's, I guess, distracted by Madeline kind of killing Orca's people. And he's kind of aghast that she's doing that so brutally. Yeah, he gets he gets a rough time. Maybe maybe the chest, maybe the shoulder. Yeah, I, I guess he's spitting up blood, so he's he's in bad shape. And he doesn't have a healing factor like Archangel no. does. So he's, And the five are off the table, so if he dies, he dies. And <laughs> Now we're in Rocky IV. If he dies, he dies. Yes. I don't know how he's going to survive. I mean, I mean, I guess Madeline's got some magic powers, but... She's got all the magic powers. Yeah, she's going to pull some sort of a rabbit out of a hat. Yeah, I mean, he got some adamantium claws through the neck, and he's spitting up blood. Yeah, we, we also have a nine-page backup, largely about Havoc. Uh, it has a different artist and shows kind of how some of these characters came to live there, uh, but mostly seems to be showing how devoted Havoc is to Maddie. I'll call her Maddie. And how he does kind of all the all the grunt work to keep the embassy running. And also, just how much of a grade A simp he is for her. Uh, yeah, I like that, though. I like this dynamic, like that she's actually not Jean Grey. She's got this really dark side to her. And even if she has, uh, I guess, reconciled with Jean, she's still kind of a pet, pet person, right? She seems to yeah, take really pleasure in- really kind of person who should be put in charge of a whole dimension, but that's- No, me. and she seems to take pleasure in doing bad things and dealing with demons and- you know, he keeps trying to get her to like agree to be less violent. She's like, yeah, whatever. Was it was it Strife who created her? Remind me of her origin. Oh no, no, it was not Strife. It was um, Sinister. So basically, right, he Sinister. was yeah, he was trying to develop. He's very interested in the Summers line, and he was trying to create some sort of kid that'd be able to combat Apocalypse. And so, when Jean was dead as Phoenix, he created Madeline and pretended that she you know tried to present her as Jean and then Scott married her and then uh they had a kid and that kid got infected with technogranic virus and sent to the future and became cable, blah blah blah. Awesome. Okay, yeah. So right now Havoc comes across as this yeah, very much leaning into the this the simp side of his character, which, you know, we've seen him go through some things in Hellions. I hope we see some complications to this part of him. I, he's probably enjoying having this new role to be in of support. I, I hope we get to see some stuff grow out of it, because right now, uh, especially if you look at the very, very last panel, he's drawn like a, like, like he's just, uh, and a look on his face. And yeah, I, I want to see, I want to see some more fight in, in, uh, in Havoc. I think what's interesting here is her whole thing is she's like, nobody loves me, nobody cares about me. And I'm like, you freaking got a guy that's like, going to do anything for you, right? So there's a little bit of tragedy there. I wonder, is like, she's still pining for Scott? And annoyed that Scott, who was married to her, like divorced her. That is, I mean, a whole weird dynamic to have. You know, you've got a clone thing, you've got a brother thing. 
the st- I mean, if you look up some Summers family trees on the internet, they kind of all go in a circle. <laughs> just you know, that's comic books for you, but especially the Summers family. So yeah, to to wrap this up, there's a lot of a lot of stuff in this book. You know, you're gonna find something to enjoy in this book, but to get there, you're gonna have to wade through all sorts of other things that maybe you're not so crazy about. If you're a, a longtime X-Men super fan, read every issue all through the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and you know it all, you may love seeing all these characters here. For me, it was a, a little too much. I would I would have edited, you know, we don't need a Zazel and Zero and M-Plate and Carmen and Albert the Logan bot and Havoc <laughs> and Chasm. And yeah. it's, it's just too much. So yeah. I'm hoping that a few of these stories come to the front and the rest kind of fall behind. I, I want to know why this book matters. I want to know why this book exists. Otherwise, yeah, I'm going to get tired of this book real quick. It's art a lot for- Mostly pretty cool. The backup art was a different tone to it, which is fine because it's a different kind of a story. Uh, yeah, cut long story short, uh, six out of 10. Oh, wow. Yeah, I liked it a lot more. It's it, For me, I it's think. more of a seven. And Fair enough. I agree with you. It's a lot. Um and I was going to say, it's a lot for like a five-issue miniseries. Oh, it's, yeah. My gosh. It seems like they are dumping way too much. Well, maybe that's why he puts it all in issue number one. If you're doing this as, a, as an ongoing, you could kind of trickle these out over time. But Steve Fox wants to, you know, maybe this is going to be the only X-Men book he ever gets to write for all he knows. So if he has all these stories he's always been wanting to tell, he kind of just barfs them all out at once. That was a rude way of putting it. But yeah. uh, you know what I'd say. It's interesting because the things I'm interested in right now is, you know, heck, Orcus now has Archangel. Does that mean, is he going to get that's, oh, that's sent to the same huge thing? The same jail that Scott is in, I wonder. And wow. the, you know, what's going on with Havoc? Is he going to be like one of the first deaths? And he's a relatively major character, right? This might be a emotional piece for the X-Men, right? Whether they don't have the resurrection protocol. Yeah, and if he dies, does Maddie end up calling Chasm up to kind of be a replacement Havoc? Yep. Because they have some real similarities as characters. Yeah, and she is um, talking about how, you know, she felt Jean's death and she seems to be like trying to become more heroic to like fill the shoes of Jean while she's gone for a week <laughs> since we have the Jean Grey comic next yeah, week. Like, like I said, there are good <laughs> things in this comic, just too many of them. Onward to our final book of the podcast, and that would be X-Men Red, number 14, To War We March. Written by, of course, Al Ewing. Art by Yildere Chinar. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Uh, it's a C with that little hook on the bottom. I think he's Hungarian. I'm going to go with Chinar. Uh, colors by Federico Blee. Letters by Ariana Mayer. Designed by nobody. There's no design credit in the book. That's a first. And also on the cover, it says the artist is uh, Jacopo Camagni, but I'm going to trust the interior credit page and say that it was uh, Yildere Chinar, and some copy editor made a little boo-boo, cutty-pasty. Now, there's another error on the coming attractions page, which advertises Jean Grey number 11, when that should be Jean Grey number one of a five-issue mini, or maybe even a four-issue mini, I don't know. Some copy editor... Had a, had a bad week. I don't know what happened. Now, more substantively, the past couple issues were moving pieces into place, preparing us for the Genesis War, right? In this issue, the war is here. Lots of grand-scale, widescreen action in this issue, and, and some pretty good character moments, too. So, yeah, overall, you know, some, some good things going on. Uh, in scene one, there's an opening splash. We jump right in, this double-page look of Genesis making herself, like, her return known to all of Araco. 
including waking up Arako Prime itself. I don't know exactly what that means, though. Any any ideas, Ruben, what she means by that? No, that kind of weirded me out because I was like, I didn't know that Arako wasn't awake. But... Now, we know that Red Root, Arako's version of our boy Doug, is still imprisoned over in Otherworld. Yeah. We're going to get a story about him and Sunfire sometime in the future. I was teased back in X-Men 24, but I'm, I'm getting off track. Um, yeah. So we're going to see what happens with that. But oh, this is like a very religiously flecked page. Genesis performing an act of creation, uh, ending with the Annihilation staff whispering to her that it was good. Uh, you know, super, super right out of you know Genesis chapter one. Uh, and I, I often complain about that kind of thing. I, I can't put my finger on it, but I, I kind of like the way Al Ewing handles this. It's not subtle exactly, but he feels like he knows the source material better than, for instance, like Kieran Gillen making Exodus act like Moses. It just feels a little more, <laughs> a little more deftly handled than some of the things I complain about. I, I liked it. Were you, were you good with this? I was fine with it. Yeah, it felt um, it, it was an interesting issue. It, it make it still feels like an actual big war, although. Um, it's like very compressed storytelling in here, but I agree with you. The way it's written, it's not, um, I don't know how to describe it's it. Not it's not pandering. Just, it's not pandering. Yeah, exactly. It feels like it's just like, yeah, this is a big thing and it's leveraging sort of the similarities in religious mm-hmm. texts. But it to feels make like it feel Al bigger. knows the weight of what he's using. He's not taking yeah. it for granted. Yeah, I buy that. And here we see, uh, Laktuka next to her and Orbis Thalaris and, Sobanar and oh, forget his name, two-headed Wolverine guy. Uh, so those are the ones, kind of her her, her basic starting force here. Yeah, uh, and this is followed by like a widescreen page again, checking in with several other characters we know. Uh, we are told that Laktuka, that cosmic member who teleported Storm and her team away last issue, Laktuka's staying out of the fight for now. Uh, we see the Fisher King doing some fishing. Uh, and he catches a weird fish, which I guess it's an omen, tells him something weird is happening. Yes. Yeah. I did laugh that he's like just good at fishing. I he's was, okay, living up sense. to his name. Right. <laughs> uh, he did just get that name. Sadly, no sign of Abigail Brand with him. I really want to see her again. But I, I guess we don't need to mix her in with the Genesis War. Save her for afterwards. I got to see her, though. I want to know what's not, up. With yeah. You do not need to convince me that we need more Abigail Brand. <laughs> She's going to uh, save also- everybody, people. This is going to be... <laughs> she's going to be the, the, the secret hero of the whole Krakoan era. Yes, she's going to be Abby super redeemed. Yeah, you guys are all <laughs> going to have to admit that she's awesome. <laughs> I, I would love to see that. Uh, for now, we also see Craig Marshall, the human scientist guy who rescued those two Iraqi children during Judgment Day. Yeah, he's just here to show that you know the Iraqi are getting really riled up, kind of anti-human. So yeah. he's heading for Port Prometheus, which seems to be where like. The humans and human-friendly folks are, are hanging out. Yep. Uh, meanwhile, at Port Prometheus, we do see some alien species here. We see, what is that? That's a, a Kree. Well, it's a, a Shi'ar and a Skrull, I think. Yeah. Uh, and each other's like They're kind of looking into like how they could profit from all this unrest. Yep. And then at the Red Lagoon Bar, now this is like the headquarters for like, Storm's you know, main, main group here. Uh, Kobak is beside himself that Laktuka would teleport him away from a challenge. And Genesis had challenged him for his seat on the ring. Yeah. And he, he didn't run away, but he was kind of forced to run away. And he sees this as a, a, a huge shame yeah. and also a crime. I guess he's looking, he's expected to be punished by being removed from existence by Aura Serrata. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty harsh. Yep. Yeah. I thought this was good, though. This is like, this is an honor based society, right? And. 
not standing your ground when you were challenged for your seat is like a big cultural shame, which I thought is a really good dynamic, right? Of like, even he sort of sees the merits of um, what Genesis is saying that yeah, Storm it, doesn't it's respect. Nice because the, Storm has been trying to win the Iraqi over to a more Earth mutant like way of seeing the world. Not 100%, yeah. but she's like meeting them halfway, right? Yep. She's giving up on resurrection to be kind of like them, but she also wants to break them off of some of their old habits that maybe made sense when they were over in Otherworld fighting the demons all the time, yep. but might not make sense now. And I like to see that they're not just immediately saying, oh, yes, Storm, you're the greatest. We'll do whatever you say. Yeah. They're kind of still feeling the power of their old ways, which yep. which is cool. So we also get a cool bit here because Laktuka only did this whole thing because Lotus Logos, the uh, the poet guy, asked him, her, it, asked Laktuka to do it. Yeah. Uh, and so Kobak is really pissed off at the poet. Yep. And Lotus Logos is so upset that he replies only, because I did not want you to die. Yeah. Which isn't even a haiku, which is all he ever talks in. Yeah. And it's not in a special hard to read font either, which is it's a real break from the way he usually speaks, which was a nice touch. Yeah, and that's it's even the like the lettering is slightly different. It is. Which really emphasizes it. I actually didn't realize he only spoke in haiku until that was pointed out. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so I kinda All wanted the time. I kinda wanted to go back, but I'm just not, you know, inclined to recognize poetry when I see it. Now that, this that's is a, mm-hmm. a pretty cool thing. This is a trick that I think Al Ewing has stolen from Shakespeare. Now, in a lot of Shakespearean plays, the high-class characters, the princes, the kings and queens, they talk in what's called iambic pentameter, right? Mm-hmm. That's the pattern that goes da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da all the time. And so when uh, when Billy Shakes wanted to convey something really major happening, so like heart-rending emotion or sadness, he would occasionally have those characters break out of iambic pentameter into plain prose. Yeah. Which is just what Lotus Logos does here. And no, I'm not I'm not calling out Al Ewing here. If you're gonna steal, steal from the best. You know, steal from Shakespeare. Well done, man. And it's cool, like it shows that Lotus is like one of the true believers in Storm, right? Like he sees a different way of living. True believers in Storm and also or at least the a relationship between him and uh Porcupine Guy. Yeah. Which we haven't seen before. And we don't know if that's going to be a romantic relationship or a friendship. It's kind of left left open. But there's a connection there that we didn't know about. I'd prefer it to be friendship just because the, the romantic stuff is like overdone, right? I would love I'd to see somebody be like willing to sacrifice their cultural values just to save a friend. Right. You, I, I'm completely great with it being like a, a band of brothers, brothers in arms kind yeah. of a thing. I don't need any more than that. Now, at this moment, Roberto walks into the scene to explain what happened at the gala, which is nothing we don't already know, but I do really like the way that Ewing shows the mental strain that Roberto was under, you know, between Xavier's mental command and trying to fight off with the Red Triangle Protocol, like Roberto's brain is kind of scrambled, which mm-hmm. which has not been shown in any other series, but it makes yeah. perfect sense once it's put on the page. I really, really like that. Yeah. Now, Storm kind of puts together that the whole pattern thing that there's not a coincidence that the Genesis War and the Orcas attack are at the same time. It's, it's clearly coordinated. So now we get a jump ahead in time and a data page, you know, can't tell a page without a scorecard. And I, I do like that we don't need a whole chapter for each of these players here. I, I want to know what's going on. We're told that Genesis is gathering many of the Iraqi to her at the Great Ring. Uh, a lot of these mutants are kind of still 
nostalgic for those not-so-old, old days when she was in charge. So uh, that makes sense. We're told that Iska, the unbeaten Genesis sister, she wants to be, you know, keep me out of this. Which I, I like, because having her be the deus ex machina again would be just too much. Yeah. We're told that the Locust Vile, now without Tarn, are hiding out in the Spire Vile. Kind of like Abby Brand, I, I'd like to see these weirdos again sometime. Yeah. Uh, Sobinar, who is nominally on Genesis's side, is kind of, you know, he's not giving her full control of the ocean that he's in charge of. He, he's not neutral, but he's also not fully committed, which is a nice complicated wrinkle. And we're told that Port Prometheus and the nearby Morrowlands, that's that artist commune, that's Storm Stronghold, and we've, we've visited these places a few times. And as we turn the page, we get this huge battle scene at uh, oh, the Valley of the Fallen is what it's called. That's the area where Zylo, the historian, created those giant statues of Genesis and Apocalypse. And it makes a really nice-looking backdrop for a battle scene. Uh, what, what did you think of this battle here? The art is amazing. Good stuff, like Zooming yeah. in on it, yeah. And the fights are the fights are good. A lot of this Tons feels of a lot like I mean, Lord of the Rings to me. 30, 40 different characters here. Yeah. No, it's, it's pretty cool. a good call. It has that feel. I, I like the the movement of the armies and the fact that not everybody is like one side or the other. It makes it really interesting. I really, I like you said. I like the way they use Iska, and they kind of remind you that she's a total badass without overdoing it. Where she basically like snipes a guy that is flying over her domain. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. I, I like that little bit. It's kind of a comedy moment, but it's it's handled it's handled well. It's not tacked on like like some jokes tend to be in the occasional X book. Uh, we have a new character, and I hope you don't get too attached to him. Uh, his name is Ordon the Omega Rocket. Yeah. He's like Sam Guthrie, Cannonball, except that Ordon is fully invulnerable when blasting. Sam, of course, famously nigh invulnerable when blasting. Yeah. Uh, Ordon is also part of Genesis's Great Ring. You gotta be an Omega to be on the Great Ring. He holds the seat of loss. Well, old Ordon makes the mistake of flying over Isco's mountains, and she shoots him out of the sky with an arrow. Right down the gullet. Yeah, it goes so, right through his mouth. Uh, there's an opening on the Great off. Ring. Anybody want to apply? <laughs> and it, it does emphasize Isco wants to be left alone. Stay out of my mountains. Mm. So that, was, that was a fun little scene. Yeah. And this battle only ends when Storm shows up. And we're told that she had been waylaid on the way to the battle, which is odd. But uh, yeah, Ruben, you, you gave me a theory over, over text yes. earlier. What do you think yes. might have happened here? Yeah. Read your Iron Man annual. And that will <laughs> explain what was going on and why she's delayed. Maybe because she is kind of pulled off to fight Iron Man there. But at the end of that issue, she kind of goes off another place. So it's not like she only had that one issue of being waylaid. But yeah. if that's what Al Ewing is thinking, then, you know, good on him for being a team player and trying to make the continuity. Yeah. You, you don't need to read that. It's nonsense. <laughs> so when Storm does show up, she uses her wind powers to push back the forces of Genesis and then lightning to pull down those giant statues and kind of, you know, stop the battle, block them from attacking further. And we're told that she could have pulled the statues down on top of the enemy forces to kill them, chose not, which is nice and all. Not sure how wise it was, given the current situation. But what did you think of Storm's choice here? Uh, it's consistent with Storm. Again, she's not entirely pragmatic. Uh, I know she's trying to prove a point, right? In a way, mm -hmm. she's trying to say, like, I don't need to change my ways just to combat you. I can honor my view of the way the society should be, but it seems like, yeah, I, I think it is kind of a foolish maneuver to do that. 
Yeah, uh, somewhere in here, I can't find it right now, but she kind of says the whole idea that like if we become like them, then we've lost the war. The whole point is to not become like them, that whole situation, which you know, I'll buy that. I, I hope it works out well for her. Uh, we go to our final scene here at the Red Lagoon again, uh, Storm and her main crew kind of just talking about what's happened. Storm notes that no one's seen Apocalypse yet, which again, we've noticed that too, which really feels like foreshadowing. We, we've got to see the big guy soon, right? He's yeah. We keep talking about him. It's, you know, uh, Chekhov's giant blue mutant. He's, he's going to be here soon. Storm also predicts that since Genesis had ma- hadn't made any headway over land, she's going to be trying to get Sobinar to let him atta- let her attack via the sea. Again, that feels like, like foreshadowing. They're going to get some sort of aquatic attack. Uh, Storm says she wants Port Prometheus yeah. protected so their supply lines don't get cut off. Now, what supply lines would those be? I mean, nothing's coming to them from Krakoa, from Earth. Are the Shi'ar giving them, you know, weaponry and supplies? Maybe. I I just thought of that as more of like uh, you're in the middle of a conflict, and in order to defend different locations, you have to keep the frontline troops fed and supplied. So I think she's got like little armies within her little area deployed, right? Okay, I'll buy that. I didn't think it was like some allusion to like we're getting... Maybe they are getting resources from the Shi'ar. I don't know. It did but, just, I hadn't even thought about where the resources are coming from until she mentioned that. I'm like, hey, yeah. where are they getting resources from? Because again, yeah. definitely not from Earth. Yep. Now, the final page here is the Fisher King walking into the bar, which, which isn't a joke. He actually walks into the bar, and he's half covered in these nasty worm things, yeah. meaning he's merged with the remainder of that wounded historian, Zylo. Yeah. The same way we saw Cable merge with Zylo in the Sins of Sinister timeline. So that's that's pretty cool. I like that. That's uh, what yeah, he gets so, for eating the fish. <laughs> <laughs> you got to cook those fish, people. You got to cook them. Yeah. If you're going to have sushi, you got to check them really carefully. Now, yeah, things are moving pretty fast here. I'm not super into the whole wars and battles. I've never even fully read Lord of the Rings. You know, don't take away my nerd card. I couldn't get through it. Uh, but yeah, this is is done well. I like that we're kind of jumping ahead a little. We're not getting caught up in the minutia of every last battle and every ebb and flow of the war. We're kind of seeing the high points, seeing the characters we care about. And yeah, I like that. Again, not my not my favorite kind of story. And I, I want to see Abby Brand. I want to see Genesis. I want to see how this brings Mars into whatever it's going to be going forward. But yeah, Al Ewing's done doing a really good job here. And I guess I'm going to call this a solid eight out of ten. I think I think I, I I buy it too. This this one feels rich, and there's a lot going on, but it's not as overwhelming as X X Men Dark. Yeah, everything Dark that's X-Men. in here feels like it has a purpose, and not just to show off. Hey, here's a character I heard of that you haven't heard of. It, it it's there for a reason, and I, I Al Ewing is doing doing some good good work. Okay, are we ready to wrap up? Yeah, sweet. Now uh, for recommended reading going forward, how about uh, how about the first dozen issues of show so of the original John Byrne Alpha Flight? Those are good stuff. Uh, definitely in Marvel Unlimited, so go check that out. And if you want to read the rest of Alpha Flight and get caught up on uh, Mac as a cyborg and Puck as having demon powers, you know, God bless you. More power to it. Don't even send me those emails. I don't think I want to know. But those first dozen issues, good stuff. Uh, do you have any recommended readings? Not this week. I, I'm reading Messiah Complex, as I said I would do and it's i'm enjoying it um but i don't think it's necessary reading for this week at all okay well that's fine because we have yet more number one issues coming out next week we have realm of x number one 
which is the Torin Grombeck, uh, some subset of mutants end up going to the Asgardian planes. Not the one I'm most looking forward to, but we'll give it a fair shot. And we have Jean Grey, number one. Hey, ain't she dead? Uh, yeah, it's tragic I guess- that I have to deal with her for immediately, right? I was hoping we'd have a break from her for a bit. It's not super clear if this is... I forget uh, what writer they've called back. They've called back a, like an oldie-timey... That's that's a rude way of saying it. A very well-established 80s and 90s writer to do this. I, I forget who it was, but it's not clear to me how much of this is going back into Gene's backstory and telling an old kind of retro tale like we've seen in, in you know, uh, Joe Fix-It and some other things, or if it is particularly tied in with the current timeline. I'm not sure, but we'll find out next week. And also, it's X-Force number 43. And I'm very curious to see how X-Force even still exists in the current continuity, given what's happened in uh, at the gala. So that'll be fun. And there is Invincible Iron Man number nine, which we will certainly check into and see if that tells us anything about Emma and maybe Wilson Fisk and maybe some Stark Sentinels and, and see how relevant it is to the issues we care about. So does that sound like a good time, Ruben? Uh, <laughs> I'm less excited about those books, but yes, yeah. X Force number forty three. I, yeah, I think that's the one we're most excited. At least that's what I'm most excited about. I yeah, I'm curious what's going on with that and how Fantastic. it's going to work. Now, until those books come out, Ruben, what would you suggest that our dear listeners do with their copious amounts of spare time? <laughs> yeah, read more X Men comics. <laughs> 